to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. And welcome to you all. I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. And I have to tell you that before I was that, I worked at the New York Times. And when I started work at the New York Times in 1983, there was this fresh young Harvard graduate who was also starting at the New York Times about that time, except he was a lot smarter about being at the New York Times than I was. I came from the country, as it were. And uh, I remember in those days being, the, the Times is the kind of place where they have very particular ways of doing everything, but it is against the culture to tell you what they are. So you have to figure that hasn't them out. <laughs> so you have to figure that out for yourself. David, I have to say, was extremely helpful to me. I doubt that he even remembers this, but I used to spend many, many nights uh, trying to crack the code, and he was uh, there as well. Uh, being the sort of chronic overachiever he has always been uh, and helped me actually do that very thing, crack the, the code. So, David, thank you for that. David is uh, one of the real ornaments uh, and stars of the New York Times. He has done an incredible amount of distinguished work. Um, he was a little late for this this to right now because he was finished, he, has, he finished watching uh, Mr. Netanyahu's speech, uh, although he told me in keeping with the uh, digital land uh, values, he wrote the analysis early this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Why but, wait? You know? <laughs> but but, but he, he will get to that. David has been uh, critical uh, for the New York Times in covering some of the most sensitive stories that they've had uh, about uh, cyber, uh, cyber issues, secrecy issues, and he and his friend and fishing companion and colleague here at the Kennedy School, Graham Allison, have uh, significant disagreements about some of these things. David, I think, looks at it from a journalistic perspective. Graham, I think, looks at it like the warden of a prison who would like to put David inside it, <laughs> as, as well as uh, some of the other uh, journalists uh, who, have, uh, who have done the work of telling people things that the government did not want them to know because the government felt that they were genuine secrets. Anyway, David is an all-purpose, superb journalist. Delighted to have you with us. My friend and my colleague, welcome, and the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I'm going to turn this off. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. It's great to be um, back here. It's great to be um, at the Shorenstein Center, uh, as Alex and my other friends up here will tell you, I never feel uh, more at home than when I'm back in Cambridge. And it's great to be back here with Alex. Just to frame for you sort of the, the curve of my 32 years at the Times, I started off sitting in the business section next to Alex, from whom I learned far more than he learned from me. And I today sit, except when she's up here, next to Jackie, from whom I've learned far more than I have ever uh, been able to show her. So as, as you can see, Alex, I'm trading up. Okay? I so um, I, I would certainly agree. Right? Um, but uh, it's, um, uh, it's great to be back here. But I 
before I start in on my talk, I just want to say since this is um, Alex's uh, last semester and I'm uh, here running the Shorenstein Center, and I am sure there will be a moment to go roast him at the end of this time. And I certainly, for one, will, will not miss that event. Uh, I, will, uh, I, I will certainly come up for that. Um, I just want to say, Alex uh, has now run this place for 15 years. I remember the day that you were appointed to it. I remember the excitement you had. I remember the excitement everybody at the Kennedy School and Shorenstein had when you were coming. And what you have done with the place is just nothing short of astounding. If all of you could be transported back in time and see what Schoenstein was 15 years ago, you, know, you wouldn't fill a room like this. Uh, you certainly wouldn't fill it like this uh, every Tuesday. Uh, and not only that, but the way the fellows program has come together your international program has come together. It has really become part of the lifeblood of the Kennedy School in a way that I don't think people could even have imagined when you stepped in. Well, I can so. assure you it was not just me. It was a whole team of people. But it thank it you. was, and I know the team, but I also know that if it hadn't been for Alex, this wouldn't have all happened. So, um, so uh, much as I miss um, those late-night conversations where we could... Um, go talk about what ridiculous thing the New York Times did to us that day, and we had a lot of those. Um, and I keep a picture in my office at home that actually has got <coughs> Alex in it. It was from 1987. It, we, we, we were both on Pulitzer. Well, Alex won an individual Pulitzer. I was just on the team that won a Pulitzer at the same moment, and that was quite a party that night. So uh, Alex had a lot of hair in that picture. I just want you to know. And for the right price, I will pass it around. You know? so, so there you go. As, as they say at the Times, winning a Pulitzer will make your day. That's right, and only that day. <laughs> because they will forget about it the next day. <laughs> so anyway. Well, um, there's lots to discuss in not only the Obama foreign policy, but how we cover uh, the foreign policy. Uh, and. Um, in the Q&A, if we want to all turn to the um, Iran negotiations, Bibi just having given his speech and making, uh, I think, as powerful a critique against what uh, what shape the agreement is taking as one could make. I'm not sure. In it, I'm not sure a fulsome critique, but a, a, a very powerful one. Um, I, we should return to that. I, that news analysis that I wrote, which I actually wrote last night, because what you do now is you write your news analysis and it goes up at 6.30 in the morning because we now know that most of our readers pop in very early in the morning to the, to the website. So it's a whole different world. Um, uh, I wrote about how what started a number of years ago as a seemingly semantic difference between Obama and Bibi Netanyahu about whether the objective was to stop Iran from getting a weapon or stop Iran from getting the capability to build a weapon. And it seemed like a small wording difference, but those of us who spend our lives uh, digging in these troves knew it was a, it, it had huge potential implications. I asked President Obama about this difference in an interview that Peter Baker and I did with him in 2010, there's a link to it in uh, the story that's up today, and he dodged the issue. He would not get into what the difference was between stopping the capability and stopping the actual weapon. 
And today, as, as I wrote, this has turned from a semantic issue into a strategic chasm. And that was really what you heard going on in, in the speech uh, today. Um, and uh, so this chasm may end up destroying the agreement, if there is one, uh, or at least destroying the ability of uh, President Obama to make this agreement, which I think, if it happens, will be the biggest strategic gamble since Nixon did the opening to China. Uh, and that was uh, uh, many a decade ago. Um, so we can come back to all that. Our subject today is covering the cyber wars. And by that, I don't mean covering cyber security. When you can't turn on your uh, computer these days and call something up without reading about how to protect yourself against hackers who are stealing your social security numbers from uh, Anthem and Blue Cross Blue Shield or your credit card numbers from Target and Home Depot or your bank accounts from J.P. Morgan Chase, which got hacked in a very big way last year, or any other realm of personal information. That's interesting. There are technological questions it raises. Some of them are fascinating, including whether or not to solve this problem. We basically have to destroy the Internet as we know it and rebuild it from the ground up in a way that thinks about security because it was never it was built for openness, not for, for security. And there is, you know, it's a little bit like that. At what point do you stop, do you start, um, you stop patching the leaks in your house and say, that's it, I'm bulldozing the entire thing and building from anew because I, I can't fix this thing up anymore. And that's a big issue. But that's not really the issue that um, I wanted to discuss today. I would say probably six years ago when I was, had just come back from uh, working on a book called The Inheritance about what President Bush left President Obama and had revealed in there that President Bush had ordered the first use of computer attacks on Iran. Um, a, uh, a revelation that I didn't know until we read uh, uh, the Secretary of Defense Gates's memoir, which came out earlier this year, so outraged Obama that he wanted to start a leak investigation right away into the Bush administration and figure out where this came from until Gates said to him, well, you know, a leak investigation into your predecessor in the first few weeks of your new presidency probably isn't a great idea, and they kind of let it go. But at that time, we came, came back to the newsroom, and I said, you know, we need to begin to think about how we are going to cover the strategic implications of cyber. Cyber is an offensive weapon. Cyber is something that utilizes state power. Cyber as something much greater than just worrying about a bunch of kids sitting in a basement who are going after your bank account numbers or your photos or getting into your Facebook account. And um, quite frankly, as many things are, as uh, uh, Alex uh, remembers and Jackie knows all too well, can be these. This was an uphill struggle at the paper initially because it's extremely difficult to get editors, reporters, others to think about what is essentially a non-traditional form of warfare. 
drones was a fairly easy thing to get everybody organized around covering because we understood the concept of sending an unmanned aircraft up, of arming those, and of the consequences when you hit that house in Pakistan or, worse yet, hit the wrong house or miss the house entirely and hit a school. Um, we understand nuclear because we all saw at Hiroshima and Nagasaki the uh, incredible destruction that it could cause. Cyber is completely different, much harder to get people to understand the implications because there are so many different kinds of cyber attacks and so many of them seem minor and not terribly um, conducive to big coverage of strategic issues for the United States. And in fact, when you think about cyber, you really have to think about sort of three different elements of it. There's cyber for espionage, um, you know, basically using computers to do what we've done for so many years in tapping telephones, for example, um, just as a, a, a state use of espionage, or an attack that's on your accounts, just essentially espionage, to pick up your um, passwords and then use it for theft. Not significantly different, but a lot more sophisticated than <coughs> stealing your keys, stealing some other way into something that's locked up. Then there's cyber for economic advantage. And here you're right at that cusp between the business world and the national security world. And it's what the Chinese have done so successfully. The Chinese, as you know, go in and use cyber to steal intellectual property. They're not the only ones who do that, but they've turned it into an organized business and run it out of Unit 61398 of the People's Liberation Army. And they've made it a pretty good business. They got the designs to the F-35, the, uh, the new American fighter. And then, having gotten the designs, they looked at it and they said, I can't believe the Americans are putting such old electronics into this. <laughs> and they, actually, in their version of it, they're coming out with significantly more updated material. Maybe we have something to learn from that. Uh, but they also go into it for um, corporate information, competitive information, so forth and so on. And that's become a very big issue between the United States and the Chinese, with the U.S. basically making the argument that cyber for espionage is fine. That's about national security. They haven't really thought through this argument fully, I think. But there's something off limits about stealing for economic advantage. And the Chinese look and say, what's more central to our national security than economic growth? Of course we're going to steal for economic advantage. Your only problem is you haven't gotten that good at this. So, so we're in a completely different sphere between the Chinese and the US on how to go do this. And then there's the truly fascinating side of destructive cyber, cyber for political coercion, and so forth. And that's the cyber that was involved in Olympic Games, which is the code name for the the uh, US-Israeli operation against Iran, just to come back to the subject of the day, which was an effort to try to slow down Iran's ability to enrich uranium by mounting the most sophisticated cyber attack in history 
on the enrichment facilities at Natanz. And I wrote about this a lot in the next book, which was Confront and Conceal, and wrote about it in uh, the Times, and we ended up getting a leak investigation and grand jury and all that for our troubles, but another subject we can take on uh, later on if you, if you want. Um, that was interesting because as the president entered into that, in the Situation Room discussions he had in 2009, as he adopted this um, program, uh, or inherited it really from, from President Bush, he had a lot of questions about it. And one of the big questions about it was, what happens when it eventually comes out, as he knew it would, I don't think it would happen this quickly, that the United States and Israel are behind this, what happens when other states decide they're going to go use the same techniques? What happens when they say, if it's good enough for the Americans to do, we can do it too? Do we have any rules that surround how we use these weapons? Do we have any kind of concept of arms control around these weapons? How do you do arms control with a weapon that is no longer simply in the hands of the state? And the great thing about nuclear weapons, if there was one great thing about them, is not many people had them. So when we had to have a conversation about how you control them, we could have it in conversations between the United States and the Soviets. That didn't happen until uh, the early 60s, so nearly 20 years after we had dropped the bombs in Japan. And it didn't happen because we thought we had a 20-year lead on everybody else. And then that lead quickly got eroded. The Soviets got the bomb in 1949. The Chinese got the bomb in the early 60s. In between, we had shared the uh, technology with a number of our allies. In cyber, of course, we don't have the benefit of any of that kind of time. People are getting this technology much more quickly. And it's not simply in the hands of states. It's in the hands of states, it's in the hands of criminal groups, it's in the hands of corporations, it's in the hands of teenagers. So the old idea of signing treaties doesn't really work because by and large teenagers don't sign treaties. Or let me put it this way, the teenagers in my household definitely <laughs> don't sign treaties, okay? So um, the Difficulty is we have no early concept of how we are going to control this. And the other fascinating element is, unlike nuclear weapons, these can be used, cyber weapons can be used without overwhelming, devastating result that will certainly lead to retaliation. So fortunately, nobody has used a nuclear weapon and though Bibi didn't add this on into his speech today, the Iranians would know if they ever got one and they used it against Israel, you know what Tehran would look like an hour later. But cyber weapons are so cheap and so adjustable, unlike nuclear weapons, which just go off or don't, that the temptation to use them is enormous. In fact, it's almost irresistible. And so what's happened in the past year, two years. We saw Iran use the weapon against Saudi Aramco, where they destroyed about 30,000 computers in an effort to sort of get back at them on 
oil production. Last week, Jim Clapper, the director of national intelligence, said for the first time that it was the Iranians who were behind a destructive attack on computers at a Las Vegas casino. Now, you really want to hurt America? That's how you go do it. You go after our casinos, really. I mean, it's a pretty dirty pool. Um, and, of course, the North Koreans, we think, were behind attacks on South Korea two years ago. And then along came the Sony hack. And I was very glad that we, over the years, sort of began to assemble a bit of a team within the Times across different desks to sort of develop and deepen our um, cyber coverage. Because when Sony came, we were actually pretty well positioned. And it was a fascinating attack. So just for those of you who may have forgotten some of the details um, from last fall, Sony decides to turn out a truly terrible movie, Okay, the interview. If you haven't seen it, don't bother. Download House of Cards. You'll have a much better evening. Okay, uh, but it it was it was really bad. Um, the Chinese, uh, I'm sorry, the North Koreans then issued a threat to Sony that if they released this movie, there would be huge consequences. They wrote a letter to the Secretary General of the UN asking him to stop the movie from coming out because we all know that the Secretary General's influence in Hollywood is so deep and great. Okay. Um, the head of Sony, um, a Harvard class of 82 graduate, classmate of mine, um, called into the State Department and asked them to give him an assessment of how to deal with these threats. And the answer he got back was, well, the North Koreans threaten a lot of things. They shoot missiles off all the time into the water. You know, they like to threaten war every time you do almost anything. So forget about it. Okay. What Sony didn't know was, first of all, they had pretty poor cybersecurity. Secondly, they had been the subject of a bunch of what's called spear phishing attacks. Those are the attacks that come when you get those emails, you know, that seem to come from Alex, but in fact they're not really from Alex, and you click on something and you ended up putting, putting uh, uh, some kind of virus into your computer. Well, somebody clicked on one of these, and it was a really brilliantly designed piece of software. And over a period of months, quite silently, the North Koreans managed to, through the, those that they had, had signed up to do this, managed to get not only into the Sony email system, which is how you read all those juicy emails about Angelina Jolie, uh, but also got into everything else in Sony in a way that they could begin to do, plan out a destructive attack. And they spent two and a half months planning it, figuring out how the system, and this was not a little drive-by attack. This was a right, planned attack, and on November 24th, just before Thanksgiving, they began to execute that. And uh, that's just at the moment when you saw the big threats not to release the movie, which was supposed to come out on Christmas Day. The U.S. government reacted pretty slowly at first. They didn't really understand the scope of what was going on. And as we reported in January, <coughs> it took a few weeks for them to suddenly realize 
that they had a way to figure out who had done this, which was, as we learned from the Snowden revelations, they had done an operation in 2010 to get up inside the North Korean computer systems, and they ultimately did find the evidence that it was the North Koreans who had ordered this whole thing up. So Sony had it all for what it is that we're trying to figure out now how to cover journalistically. Here was a state-sponsored attack on a company. It was not a company that was involved in critical infrastructure. If we had all been sitting here a year ago and discussing this topic, or actually I was supposed to come up in the previous semester and got thrown off on a story and couldn't, but had we done that, I probably would have predicted at that time that if we got into a big conflict with another country over a cyber attack, it would be because they took out the electric power grid in New York or the cell phone network or the stock exchange or something that you would consider critical to the operations of the country, which Sony's ability to release movies probably isn't, although for some of us perhaps it is. Um, instead, this was the first attack that led the President of the United States to go into the press room and the briefing room and say, the U.S. is going to respond to this. They did so publicly with sanctions on North Korea. There may or may not be, and we haven't been able to dig to the bottom of it, cyber counterattacks to them. Uh, but um, the result was that we're now in the sort of new era of somewhat constant conflict. We have four major cyber adversaries, China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran. There are many others below that who are using cyber in many different things, from large conflicts to small, to try to get economic advantage, to try to get military advantage, to try to get strategic advantage. And yet only now, as a country, are we beginning to think about how these this period of cyber conflict, short of war conflict, this is not outright war, though people use, use the phrase cyber war pretty loosely, only now beginning to think about how this affects the way countries interact with each other, particularly how the U.S. is dealing with many of its major adversaries. It's also had two other big effects. One is it has helped widen that divide that Snowden created between Silicon Valley and the U.S. government. For years after the Cold War, technology companies felt like they could work with the U.S. government, help them on a variety of terrorism investigations, Cold War issues, and so forth. But what's happened now is that post-Snowden, <clears throat> the companies are racing to show that they are no longer going to cooperate with the U.S. government because they think that if they do, it will kill their ability to sell their products overseas. And the big evidence of this came when Apple introduced the new software that goes into your iPhone. And if you've got an iPhone and you've done an update in the past six months, you've gotten that, that new software. And while they don't advertise it highly, if you go back into the literature on it, you will discover that the software for the first time throws away the keys that would enable Apple, if they get a warrant, to turn over the data that's in your iPhone. They no longer have the keys for that. It's built into that code you put in when you 
unlock your phone, and that goes into a 2,000-character um, code. But the essence of it is that if the FBI came along with a warrant and um, picked up your iPhone because they thought that you were suspected of abetting a terrorist or a kidnapping case or a child pornography case or whatever it is, and they mailed the FedEx, the iPhone, to Apple and said, we need all the contents of this iPhone, Apple would send them back complete and total gibberish because Apple would say, we no longer have the key. Now, the director of the FBI has come out and protested this. The Intel heads have all been very concerned about it because they're not worried about the kidnapper. They're worried about the terrorist they pick up in Afghanistan who's got an iPhone or the terrorist they just killed in Afghanistan and they get his iPhone and he's not in condition to provide them with his four-digit key uh, at that moment. And so they think it's going to be the, be the opening edge of a whole new era where in our effort to protect ourselves against all of these cyber threats, whether it's Russian or Chinese or North Korean or Iranian or something else, or just criminal hackers, we are basically sealing off the government's ability to get as much of this data. The concept is called going dark. And it raises a huge national security and privacy concern. There's a second, and this will be my last issue, so we have plenty of time for Q&A, uh, that has come up, which is that the government itself can't decide how it wants to go deal with the secrecy that it has enveloped around its own development of cyber weapons. After World War II, we could begin to think about arms control agreements, because it was no secret we had nuclear weapons and we had shown what they could do. And then, of course, we had chemical weapons and people knew what they could do. <coughs> we had biological weapons, which decided not to use them, people knew what they could do. Even in drones, while it was started off as a secret program, it was pretty obvious what the results were instantaneously. But in cyber, the president has never talked about our offensive capabilities. Jim Clapper was on Charlie Rose last night, and he wouldn't talk about our offensive capabilities. And yet we are spending billions and billions of dollars every year developing new and better offensive capability. You can't begin to have a conversation about how you're going to control these until you start off by admitting that you have them and talking about the conditions under which you might use them or the conditions under which you'll never use them. And that's been a major journalistic issue. And when people say to me, so why did you come out and report on Olympic Games? My answer is first, the Iranians already knew about it because accident that happened, they got the code, so I wasn't exactly telling them something they didn't know. But secondly, because once the Iranians and everybody else in the world knew what the code looked like, we needed to have a bigger conversation on the question of how we want to go use these weapons, exactly the issues that the president raised in that, in that discussion in the sit room, which the president said in an interview with Recode when he was out uh, doing his cyber events at Stanford two weeks ago, is a conversation the whole U.S. needs to have. But we can't have it until we begin to understand what we've got, and that's our journalistic challenge. So I will leave it at that, Alex, and we will turn to whatever okay. you want. Uh, I'd like just to ask a couple of questions, and then we'll open it.
When we think about cybersecurity as lay people, the assumption, I believe, is that uh, there is no secret, and no matter how you're told or who tells you that you have privacy, uh, <coughs> that it's sealed off, that there is a, uh, a mechanism by which you can protect yourself in this regard, <coughs> it's simply not true. Would you subscribe to that? By and large, I would. Um, there's no system right now that we've seen out there that can't be defeated. I think the most astounding thing about the revelation that Hillary Clinton was using private email in her time at the State Department is that she came, she must have come to the conclusion that she so distrusted the um, security around the State Department's own email system that she was, you know, better using Gmail or AOL or whatever else she was using uh, out there. Um, but you're right. Um, you know, Amy Pascal did not imagine that her jokes about President Obama's favorite movies were going to be broadcast around the world. And um, it's unfortunate because it sort of makes you sit, even as you're writing an email to your closest personal friend, you're thinking, what if this ever gets out? Uh, but uh, there is no guaranteed system right now, which goes back to the question of whether or not we would want to completely redesign the internet for something that we thought was a greater assurance. So how does that square with the idea that hackers can intervene in these systems and not be able to be traced? I mean, how, what is the state of forensics in this kind of a situation? The one with North Korea, I was a little murky about how we were able to make sure that it was the North Koreans who had denied it. Uh, is there, is that forensics, which is you know coming at it the other way, uh, a sure thing or is it not? It's not a sure thing, and um, cyber forensics is a huge area, as you can imagine. Something the U.S. government, but all governments, are putting a lot of money into, and all law enforcement agencies are putting a lot of money into. Um, one of the easier things when about the nuclear age, to go back to the nuclear uh, analogy, is that you could go into a big cave in Colorado and you could see that big map that you see up in the movies and you could see where the missiles were coming from. This is more like terrorism. A bomb goes off somewhere and you're trying to figure out who's responsible. And one of the reasons that it's so difficult to do this is that it's so easy to route a cyber attack through many false servers and make it look like it's coming from Grandma Mary's computer in the middle of Illinois someplace. In fact, when the New York Times got attacked by the Chinese after David Barboza's fabulous series on uh, the Chinese Prime Minister's family and how they made billions of dollars off of his name, and the Chinese were all through our computer systems and in a way it impressed me because I've been there for three decades and I've never figured my way around the New York Times <laughs> computer system and they seem to manage to do it in about a month and a half. But the last hop, the last attack that we saw when we first were looking for what IP address did this come from was a university in the southern United States. Now supposing we were a government, some people think the New York Times is, it's not actually, um, and we had said, okay, we're going to fix these guys. We're going to go fry their computers 
because that's where the attack came from. There's something called hacking back many companies think about. And supposing the way we had dealt with this was frying the computers <coughs> of this nice little university in the southern United States, they probably would have been pretty angry with us. Okay. So the best way to make forensics work, not the only way, but the best way to make forensics work is to have implants in foreign computer systems around the world that are essentially like little radar stations that you have secretly put in everybody's networks and computers. And this is what the NSA uh, spends a lot of its time doing because it's got to figure out what's happening and you can use the same implant for espionage. You can use it simply to understand how a computer system is being used or you can use it to launch an attack. And in the end, one of the most interesting things we learned from the Snowden documents was how extensive the program of implants had been. And it's still an extremely sensitive subject. I would say that in the conversations we have with the US government about cyber stories, which are now you know, a couple a month, usually one of their greatest sensitivities is how much specificity we have about where implants are, when they were put there, how, how they happen. If you've got the implant, then you can go back and say, yeah, I saw this program massing. But it raises a very big question. Supposing just as a hypothetical that some, the NSA one day goes in and briefs the president and says, Mr. President, we have seen a major attack developing in country X against the Boston um, Tea to make it run even <coughs> less reliably than it does during the snow. Okay, not possible. Not possible. <laughs> Let's get a better analogy here to take down the entire power grid uh, in Boston. Okay, and um, so you have to make a decision about whether to act preemptively. If you call Country X, the leaders of Country X will say, "We know nothing about this. I mean, maybe we've got." some kids working away on this, but you know, we've all got kids who are doing bad things on the computer. I understand you guys do too, okay? You could go back and do a preemptive cyber strike, but if you end up really taking out a big government computer installation, it looks like you struck first. You could threaten an actual kinetic military strike. You could try to shore up your own defenses and hope that you're, it's good enough. But it raises all kinds of issues. And we're still at the point where the intelligence agencies don't want to talk very much about this. I thought what was interesting and a lesson many people learned in the Sony case was the president came out and blamed North Korea. But the intel agencies were reluctant <coughs> to let him cite what the evidence was. And then all the skeptics came in and said, no, it wasn't North Korea, it was this group or that group or that group. And this went on for weeks until the FBI director came out with slightly more information that wasn't terribly satisfactory and even terribly revelatory. And then we ran a story about the implants that had been put in North Korea. And when that was all done, I got a call from somebody in the U.S. government who was not in the intel agencies, but said, David, I have been asked to call to protest to you that you revealed this older cyber operation, and I'm issuing my protest. And now that I've issued it, I want you to know that I think you guys did more for cyber deterrence 
by making it clear we could track it back than anything we've done in the past couple of years. I said, great, I'm, I'm glad we had this little conversation. So, Is the New York Times going to do a story or a series of stories on this implant strategy? We have been doing a series of stories I mean, on the... Well, I mean... We have. Breaching the, the acceptability as far as the government is concerned. I mean. we, we, if you ask the U.S. government, we have been doing nothing but that over the past year. Now, we haven't done it in a formal series called Implants, right? Uh, partly because people will remind people of dental procedures or something like that. Uh, but, um, but yes, we have been writing about this extensively for the past year. And have they been protesting vigorously or passively? Less or? vigorously as time has gone on. I think that they have recognized at this point that the Snowden documents on these issues are pretty well circulated, that, that certainly America's biggest cyber adversaries have read those documents pretty thoroughly and they understand it. So then the question is, who are we protecting from this information? So um, I am going to let you speak mm -hmm. to, to him, but I do want to ask, is there now, hypothetically, in your mind, a story or stories that you are not prepared yet to publish at the New York Times in this area? Um, we have withheld some details, but I'll give you an example of something I held back that then Snowden revealed. So when I wrote Confront and Conceal, I learned a fair bit along the way about how the United States was able to leap what's called the air gap between the Iranian computers and the outside world. So the Iranians had done something that most American companies, a lot of universities, and all of us have been tempted to do, which is say, okay, here's our computer system. We're unplugging it from the internet, because if we're not plugged into the internet, nobody can attack us, right? Wrong. So there are all kinds of ways to go attack a computer that is not internet. One of them is, if you know where a computer is headed, that it's ultimately headed to that kind of system, and you could intercept that machinery prior to the time that it left the American factory where it's been made or while it's being shipped, and insert a little bit of technology onto the motherboard, you might be able to beam into it later on. Not that I'm suggesting that this has ever been done by the U.S. government, but there is one Snowden document out Jeez. that actually shows American officials slitting open the packing boxes for uh, some computer servers, basically uh, large, large computer servers and, and internet servers that were going to Syria and putting, putting the equipment into it. We, there was another set of documents, uh, which also came out from Snowden, first revealed by Der Spiegel, uh, that showed how the technology works to basically leap over that air gap into a computer because it's got a USB that's been put into it or it has this other computer boards before they were shipped so that you can control it from a basically a computer that is the size of a briefcase up to seven miles away. And it was that kind of technology, not specifically that one, that was used in Olympic Games and Stuxnet. Because not only did they put the, the worm into the Iranian computer systems, but they updated the worm when they decided that it needed additional work. And that's what led to the mistake that got Stuxnet out. So I withheld that technology from the book, which only came out two and a half years ago. And a year later, all that detail was out 
in the Snowden doc. Let me open it up now, and uh, Nick first, but students also. So um, it's been publicly reported that the, the White House is under attack. Um, that don't mean like White House down kind of thing, but it is a cyber attack. Um, and I actually recently came from there, but mostly on the unclass side, not, mm -hmm. didn't do anything on the cyber side. I'm just wondering why this hasn't been kind of a bigger story. The attacks on the White House and the State Department were um, largely on the unclassified email side. And <clears throat> getting the gremlins out of the system actually required bringing the systems down. So we were all in uh, Vienna at the end of November for the Iranian nuclear negotiations, the one that resulted in the extension uh, that led to the, the, the negotiations going on. And it happened to be the week that the State Department unclassified system was completely down. So the most important meeting that took place during that entire time was not between the U.S. and the Iranians in our self-interested way. It was the moment where we actually sat down with the State Department officials and exchanged Gmail addresses back and forth <laughs> so that we could all communicate with each other during the negotiations, including with the spokesman because there was no way to do it through the State Department system. Um, that looks like it was a Russian-based attack. But going to Alex's very good question on uh, attribution, we still don't know if it was a Russian government-sponsored attack, whether it was what you call a patriotic hacker's attack, or whether it was some other outside group. Yes. Um, um, you described very clearly the, the trade-off that you uh, that you evaluate when you publish a story between national security on the one side and revealing things that wouldn't have been revealed previously or that would endanger uh, assets or even the American people. And on the other side, threats to privacy, which led, for example, to the Snowden revelations, uh, based on the argument that if you reveal things, you allow the people to empower themselves to uh, uh, fight back. And my question is, how do you make this trade-off? And how do you make sure, in your day-to-day in your -day work, when you actually decide to publish a story or not, how do you make sure to get the trade-off right and not being too influenced either by the US government, who would tend to be more national security focused, or, or uh, on to the people's side, who would be more value-focused? Very good question. I'm not sure we get it right. Uh, we do have a set of standards, which Graham and I talk about and debate a lot in our in our course, which um, is taught in the fall, it's Central Challenges in American National Security Strategy in the Press, and a few <coughs> victim students of it are scattered through the room here. Um, and most of those standards have to do with revealing um, information that would cost somebody a life, and it's very easy to cut data out when you're warned of that, or information that would endanger an ongoing or imminent military or uh, intelligence operation. By imminent, I don't mean that they say, we may want to use this technology three years from now in some case we can't imagine. Um, but uh, each one is an individual case. Our executive editor, Dean Baquet, has said publicly in recent times at a uh, event that Columbia Journalism uh, School ran uh, about sort of looking at the Snowden events years later. He said, in almost every case where he has withheld data, with the exception of some that invi involve specific life, he said, he regretted it pretty soon thereafter. 
that either the information came out in some other way, or he felt that the threat that he was that was described to him had been exaggerated. Um, but I don't blame U.S. officials for this. They're working away on these big projects. They're spending millions or billions <coughs> of dollars getting implants into computer systems because they're convinced it's the main way to have early warning of a future terror attack or some other attack. And then along comes some newspaper or some leaker like Snowden or something like that, and their entire program they've worked for years on is blown up. And the effects on American national security are very hard to measure sometimes because you don't know what information they might glean from that a year from now if the program hadn't been exposed. On the other hand, if we are going to debate how we're going to go use this incredibly powerful new technology, you can't do it until people have a real sense of what that technology allows. And that's why I think cases like Sony were so incredibly valuable because it made people recognize something that I thought Clapper put pretty well in his threat assessment last week, which is maybe what we're headed toward isn't a cyber Pearl Harbor, some big attack that takes out the East Coast of the United States. Maybe what we're headed toward is this sort of corrosive attack company by company, institution by institution. And those institutions, by the way, include universities because the Chinese, the Russians, others have figured out there are things they love about universities. They have big internet capability. They're largely open because they're open institutions. People want to be able to spread knowledge. They've got people who are floating in, back in from the government. A couple are sitting here. They've got people who are going into the government and they want to sort of learn early on what they're thinking about. So universities are probably among the biggest targets. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you, sir. Uh, so the press largely, con largely contributes to the narrative for cybersecurity, cyber espionage, cyber warfare. Um, so I was wondering, at what point do you make the threshold, like we look at this Pearl Harbor, course of corrosive attack, threshold from cyber attacks on unclassified systems that may or may not get reported to an idea of cyber warfare that, that had that kind of import in the press? Well, I think cyber warfare, as I said before, is a widely overused term because it suggests something that's going to escalate into perhaps total war. And usually these don't. Um, but instead, uh, you've got this, these attacks that range from low level to upper level. And we had to have a fairly lengthy meeting earlier this year just to discuss what kind of cyber attacks we're even going to spend reporters' time looking at. Because frankly, if we had our reporters chasing down every even significant sounding cyber attack each day, we'd be doing nothing else, you know? Particularly our business reporters right, who, who go and do this. So it's got to be, you know, our threshold keeps going up and up. But when it's state-sponsored or appears to be state-sponsored and when the target appears to be something deeper than just stealing money uh, or... Um, uh, some kind of sort of standard espionage, but instead gets to something more like Sony, where there was a political coercion element to it, there was a destructive element to it, it was the first major destructive attack sponsored by a, a, another nation on U.S. computer systems. That's what sort of raises the level for us. Yes? 
So you mentioned uh, the commercial involvement. I'm interested in the corollary of that, which is that the press in particular is is covering uh, internet technology companies' foreign decision making as if it's policy or border designations or, or content takedowns. And do, do you see an extension of that where companies are now going to have to create their own maybe cyber militias to defend against uh, foreign attacks? And, and how do you see that affecting the way you're telling this story? Are the companies more open than the government in how, in how these attacks are affecting them, or are they less? Well, most companies, particularly financial institutions, don't like to report cyber attacks because they're afraid that their shareholders will, will um, uh, take it out on the stock price. And one of the most interesting provisions, and I think maybe the most valuable provision in the cybersecurity legislation that has failed three years in a row in Congress, is one that would require the reporting of attacks within 30 days and make it an offense mm. not to. Interesting. Uh, so that's one element. President Obama, when he talks about this, is sort of caught in between. On the one hand, he doesn't want the government, you know, government can't step in to defend against every cyber attack any more than we can step in to go report on every cyber attack. And he doesn't want them to because he wants private companies to invest heavily in cybersecurity. So when the CEO of Target was thrown out of his job a few months ago, people in the White House were not entirely unhappy about that. Because prior to that time, they thought that CEOs were thinking, oh, this is a problem for our tech guy. Somebody call, call down to the tech, right? Suddenly, when you can lose your job as a CEO, it sort of raises the, mm -hmm. the investment level. If you go into J.P. Morgan Chase's um, uh, end-of-year financial statement, you will discover they are now spending half a billion dollars on cybersecurity over the next year or two. That's a significant investment that if you asked them five years ago, would they be spending anything like that, they would have said, you're crazy. Okay. So the government wants, on the one hand, for private sector to go do this. On the other hand, there are some attacks, particularly state-sponsored attacks, that no individual company could go protect themselves against. And one of the big questions is, when does the U.S. intervene? Yes, In terms of... Um, cybersecurity in terms of offense or defense, both the government or private business, how does how does US, the U.S. capabilities compare with Iran, China, North Korea, uh, Russia? And a second question, if you could look into your crystal ball 30 years from now, how will we remember Mr. Snowden? Two great questions. Um, the usual ranking you hear is that the U.S. is on top that um, the British, who we've learned a lot about from Snowden, because a lot of the documents came from GCHQ, the, the guys who did Enigma 55 years ago, but it turns out they've been pretty busy since. They're, they're sort of right after. They, they don't make a big, big noise about it, but they're quite good. The Israelis, Unit 8200, which did Stuxnet and Olympic Games with the U.S., they're quite good. Um, the Chinese are very good, but their method seems to be attack everything and see what you get. The Russians are much more stealthy, much more careful, much more patient. Uh, and they're sometimes stealing for commercial gain, but not always. And the Iranians and the North Koreans are um, further down the list, but the Iranians are gaining 
steam very fast. There's a new Snowden document that came out by The Intercept about a week and a half ago that we wrote about, which uh, was a briefing paper for the previous head of the NSA who talked about how the Iranians had responded to the Stuxnet attacks and so forth by building up their own capability. And a year ago, if you had told me that the North Koreans would do something as sophisticated as the attack on Sony, that the greatest minds of Kim Jong-il High School would have put together <laughs> this kind of attack, I would have said, you're crazy. And it turned out they did it pretty well. Snowden 30 years from now. Um, I have no problem holding the two seemingly contradictory thoughts in my head, that on the one hand, he was violated every oath that he had. Some might even call him a traitor, whether he's a traitor or a whistleblower is for others. But certainly he violated American law, his commitments, and all that. And then if he comes back to the United States, he'll be in jail for a long period of time. And that the documents that he released and the debate he started was a healthy one that the U.S. had to have. That doesn't mean that he didn't do a huge amount of damage along the way. But here's the one example I offer. President Obama had reauthorized the program that does the bulk collection of all the phone calls, data, metadata, in the United States for four or five years before the Snowden revelation came out. The revelation came out, and he suddenly decided we needed a change of policy to move that data back to the private sector, which, by the way, isn't happening right now because none of the companies want to go do it. But he, he ordered it a year ago, and absolutely nothing has happened since. But I don't think, he, you know, if the revelation hadn't happened, that policy change wouldn't have happened because it never would have come out for open debate. Um, similarly, the program that picked up Angela Merkel's telephone calls on her personal cell phone, everything I can tell, the president didn't know that we were listening in to Angela Merkel's phone calls or scores of other national leaders. There is now a rigorous process of review that is done at the White House level to determine whether the information you're getting from those programs is more valuable than the embarrassment and diplomatic damage that will be done when those programs are revealed, because the NSA previously never thought its programs would ever be revealed. I think that's a healthy kind of trade-off. Let me ask you, what of enduring genuine damage, not embarrassment, not momentary, you know, even damage, but enduring damage, have, has, has been done by the Snowden? By Snowden. You know, I think the, I think the You're damage, mail it, the damage lies between immediate, to which there was a lot. They spent hundreds of millions of dollars uh, redoing programs that got revealed, to enduring where I would say not a huge amount, because these programs were going to have to change over time anyway, as all intelligence programs do. So I would say that there was sort of a, a big damage in the zero to two-year frame period, frame, less in the two to five or 10, and probably very little beyond that. And so you think that there is very unlikely to be a brokered deal where Snowden could come home? Um, a year and a half ago, there was a lot of discussion of that in which, at, at the point at which they wanted to know what else Snowden had and what had gotten revealed. What I'm told since 
uh, and I, I think some people in the NSA have said publicly, is they now know a fair bit of what he had, and so they don't feel like they, they need the information from him as much. So I think the U.S. government's impetus to do a deal is less now than So he's it was. losing his, his leverage. I think he's losing his leverage. Yeah. Could you just say a few words about Netanyahu's speech and any impact you think it'll have? Well, sort of, you've got to think about it in two different pieces. One is the political piece, and the other is the core of his argument. In the political piece, I get the sense that he probably did a little more damage to his cause than good, in that there were, I think, Democrats who were willing to go vote for additional sanctions on Iran at the end of March, who today would not be willing to do so because they feel coerced by this deal between Netanyahu and the Republican leadership. On the substance of it, I think that he made the best case you can make for the two biggest weaknesses in the deal. And the two biggest weaknesses in the deal are, first, that it's a, it does not dismantle very much equipment in Iran. So when the deal is over, they'll be up and ready to build up and keep going. And in fact, when the deal is terminated, they're free to make as much uranium as they want or plutonium. They just can't do it at bomb grade because they're a signatory to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. The second big argument that I think he made was a more um, emotional one, which is that you're, you're taking a bet that the Iranian regime will be a lot easier to deal with 10 or 15 years from now. And we have no assurance that's going to be the case. Um, what's the problem with the argument? He still hasn't put forward an alternative scenario that would not lead you down the road to having to take military action. He, ha you know, his, he basically says, keep things as they are. The sanctions are working. A really interesting observation from a guy who sat opposite the table of a number of us a year and a half ago and said, these sanctions will never work. The Iranians will learn how to break it, they'll break out of it, and so forth. So his track record is not fabulous here. I'm sorry to say we're out of time. We've already gone over. David, Sanger, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.